Welcome to another edition of A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. I'm here with my friend Nelson Rosario. He and I have been friends since high school and we're on the track team together at Edina High School. I was the slow distance runner and he was the all-state 400-meter uh, expert. Um, but in, in the intervening 20 years, we've both gone in different directions, but have stayed in touch talking politics and other interesting topics. And in the past decade, Nelson has become an expert on Bitcoin um, he was one of the first guys to kind of think about it in my uh, in my peer group. And given his legal career, he's done a lot of work in the regulatory space around Bitcoin. And I'm super excited to be with him today as we talk about the evolution of this future currency or existing currency and what the implications might be as it currently hits new highs uh, two years after the previous peak. So Nelson, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. I'm uh, excited to be chatting you uh, about this uh, kind of weird, interesting, uh, and timely topic. So I think a lot of our listeners might know what Bitcoin is, but for those who might not, can you give us you know, the brief overview of what Bitcoin is and what it means for, for society? Sure. So Bitcoin is the most uh, prominent cryptocurrency. And uh, Bitcoin was actually the first cryptocurrency. It was, uh, it, the network went live January 3rd, 2009. So it's been around for a long time. Um, and it is a payment network um, where participants in the network can exchange uh, Bitcoin with each other. And I mean, that's kind of, in short, that's what it is. It's based off of a uh, nine page white paper that was published to an obscure cryptography email list um, back in 2008, Halloween. I don't know if there's a significance uh, to the fact that it was published on Halloween, but that's when it was. And uh, the white paper laid out a solution um, to make digital cash, basically. So there had been efforts to try and create a, a native kind of digital money um, for decades. And they always ran into the same problem. How can you, how can you be sure, you know, that if I send five Bitcoin to you, how can you be sure that I haven't sent that five Bitcoin to somebody else? It's known as the double spending problem. Now, one way you solve the double spending problem is use a, a counterparty, use a central counterparty like a bank, right? The bank says, oh, Nelson has five Bitcoin in his account. He's transferring it to Ben. And they make sure that everything is, is um, on the up and up there. But if you remove the central counterparty, how, do you, how can you continue to have that same level of confidence that somebody hasn't double spent the money? So it's, um, Bitcoin is kind of a, was an innovation in computer science. Um, because by solving that double spend problem, you also solve something called the Byzantine generals problem, which basically is how can um, participants in a network trust that the information that they're exchanging with each other hasn't been tampered with? Okay, it's a long-standing problem. And so the way Bitcoin does this is all transactions are public. Any the participant in the network can... Um, uh, keep a ledger of all the transactions so they can check their ledger and say, oh, yep, Nelson has five Bitcoin at that address. He's now sent it somewhere else. He signed it. Um, it makes use of a lot of existing technology. So there's uh, public-private keys. Every address on the Bitcoin network has um, a public key, which is public-facing. So that's where you can send um, Bitcoin too. And then it has a private key, which a user keeps secret and they use it to sign um, their transactions. So the math behind that is such that you um, can check that signature against the public key and see, oh, that had to have been, come from a private key that's associated with the public key. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on <laughs> with cryptocurrency. Um, you know, I teach a, a law school class um, with another professor on blockchain, cryptocurrency, and law. And we take about two weeks to actually dig into the technology and kind of, uh, you know, explain all the building blocks together to make something like Bitcoin possible. Um, and as part of that, you know, we talk about how this is really a, a coordination technology in terms of 
allows people to interact with ways that they couldn't before. Um, and it's really about trust. You know, it used to be that you couldn't trust information, uh, that information hadn't been tampered with on a network. Now the trust uh, has been kind of pushed out to when the information gets put into the network, right? So that was a long uh, answer to <laughs> a good question. Um, you know, and, and another thing too is, you know, Bitcoin is is money to some people. And I used to think that I understood money pretty well prior to getting interested in this. And now I'm just not so sure. Money is kind of whatever people say it is. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point. And I, I definitely want to explore that because there's been a lot of pushback from central governments and especially the organizations that used to run our fiat currency. But before we do that, there's there's two things that you brought up in your, your overall explanation. The first is the origination. Uh, you know, you mentioned the nine page white paper. I think what's unique is that it is an anonymous white paper and we don't know who wrote it yet. Tell right. a little bit more about uh, the, the author and kind of what how that mystery has driven some of the culture on Bitcoin? Yeah. So the white paper was authored by someone or a group of people going by the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, there are leading candidates that people think, you know, maybe Satoshi. Um, there's a cryptographer who died in 2014 named Hal Finney and Hal um, was one of the first people to publicly interact with Satoshi on an old um, message board, I think bitcointalk.org maybe. Um, and he was the first person to receive a Bitcoin transaction. And so uh, no one knows who Satoshi is or isn't. There's an individual from Australia named Craig Wright who claims that he's Satoshi. Um, a lot of people don't in the community don't believe him. Um, and so initially, you know, when the network launched in 2009, uh, it was just Satoshi and Hal Finney kind of exchanging Bitcoin and like coding up the, um, you know, the actual protocol based on the white paper. And for a long time, nobody, no one else was really involved. Right. So there's a process called mining. So um, for people to uh, participate in the network, they, one of the ways they can do that is by being a miner. And so a miner is someone who validates transactions and groups them together and puts them into blocks that reference previous blocks. And the reward they get for expending all that computational energy is uh, more Bitcoin. So, you know, Satoshi put, that was one of the kind of known technology elements that Satoshi put into the white paper to incentivize people to secure the network. Um, there's a very strong kind of libertarian anti-government bent um, to all of this. Uh, and, you know, Bitcoin is kind of born out of this cyberpunk kind of movement that came up in the 80s. Um, if you've ever read about like the cryptography wars between um, computer scientists and the U.S. government, you know, actually classifying cryptography as uh, munitions for purposes of export and everything. And so one of the things in the when the network is um, Satoshi put in the very first block in the network, uh, a headline from um, the Times, a UK publication, and says Chancellor on the second yeah, Chancellor on the second bailout of banks or something like that is, is the headline. And so it is kind of, um, initially it was, it started as a very kind of anti-government thing. And wouldn't it be great if we had a currency that governments couldn't um, take from us, confiscate and whatnot. So that's why sometimes you'll hear about how cryptocurrency is, is censorship resistant. But yeah, the whole mystery behind Satoshi um, in some ways kind of contributes to the culture of Bitcoin in the sense that um, it, it almost has like an immaculate conception, right? So Satoshi was really involved for the first couple of years. And then I think uh, Satoshi just disappeared in 2012, like said, posted a, a message that said, you know, I'm moving on to different things. And that was, that was the end of it. So the other thing too, is that Satoshi, since he was one of uh, the first miners on the network, or the first, um, Satoshi's sitting on like a million Bitcoin, uh, at least addresses that are associated with Satoshi. So 
Um, Which is like $20 billion, literally, <laughs> right. if it was translated to modern currency. Yeah. Right, yeah. So there's whole, I mean, it. this is a very weird space. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. And I think that's what makes it intriguing, but also, you know, people want to explore it. You know, one of the other terms that gets this thrown around with Bitcoin is this concept of the blockchain. And I think you alluded to blocks and previous blocks. Just put a little more definition on what the blockchain actually means, especially because every single business and their and their dog is like building something for blockchain. And it's like it's like disruption. It's that term that has kind of exploded everywhere. What is the blockchain in its most, you know, foundational form and like what does it evolve to mean right now? Yeah. So a blockchain is um, and if you ask a hundred blockchain experts, you're going to get a hundred different answers, right? There's no industry standard definition, although IBM's, you know, blockchain as a service, they may say that they're the industry standard, but you know, more power to them. But a blockchain in essence is a, um, a tamper evident append, append only, um, ledger of transaction data basically. So what happens is um, miners, which are a special class of participants in these networks, uh, are constantly kind of listening to the network for transactions, okay? And they are gathering those transactions. As they're gathering that, they are trying to solve a puzzle. The solution to the puzzle is just a very large number with a certain amount of zeros in front of it, okay? As they're trying to solve that puzzle, it takes on average, and this is by design of the, the network, it takes on average about 10 minutes to come up with a solution. There's no brute force way that they can do it. It's just, um, you know, it's one of the, it has to do with hash functions and there's just certain mathematical characteristics that they just kind of have to keep guessing number after number and it takes about 10 minutes till they get one that meets the profile as a solution and so when they do that they put that in kind of in a block which is just a set of information and in that block are all the transactions that they've been gathering and then basically they fingerprint the block and they reference the previous block in the blockchain and so they publish that new block with the solution and the fingerprint and the reference to the previous block to everyone in the network and the other miners see, yep, that's a valid solution. They stop trying to guess the puzzle and they move on to try and guess the new puzzle. Um, and so what happens is when you have all of this transaction information in these blocks and the reference previously, the further down um, the chain. So, you know, block six, if you were then to try and change information in block one, you would then change the information. It, by definition, you'd have to change the information in block two, block three, block four, block five, block six, um, because any small changes back in the chain uh, propagate all the way up to wherever you are currently. And so that's why, you know, there, people are interested in kind of the security of a blockchain because it's, as I said, it's tamper evident, right? It would be obvious to everybody who sees this information being broadcast, like, oh no, you changed that and you didn't change everything else. Or it just became computationally kind of impossible the older the information is that you're trying to change. So I'm not sure that fully answered your question, um, but yeah, it's a, a distributed ledger of transaction information that kind of, you know, references previous things and has certain properties like tamper evidence. Yeah, and another you know, unique characteristic of, of Bitcoin in particular, and this gets to the libertarian uh, view that you were just talking about, is there's a set number of Bitcoin that can ever be mined, whereas the Fed, as we're seeing, can print into perpetuity uh, to, to put dollars into the system. And, you know, we'll see what happens with that. But theoretically, not theoretically, there, there is a limit, I think 20 million Bitcoin. Is that, yeah, 21 the, million. is that the number? 21 million. And we're slowly approaching, I think, we're, we're like 17 or 18 maybe. Yeah, it's like 18 point. and a half million. Okay. Well, and what's interesting is it seems like, yes, there's, there's an upper limit, but 
the decimals that get appended to Bitcoin just keep increasing. So is it really an absolute maximum if you're just going to continue to, to divide it up into, you know, hundreds of Bitcoin, thousands, millions, billions? Like, isn't that in and of itself some sort of inflation? What do you mean? Well, so, you know, if you have one Bitcoin and I say, okay, this is, this is an indivisible unit, and I say, okay, you know what, I'm going to split it in half. So now you can have I half see. a Bitcoin. And you can have a tenth of a Bitcoin and a hundredth of a Bitcoin and a millionth of a Bitcoin. To some extent, that if, if it's pegged to the U.S. currency, which it kind of is in terms of this current model, there is no, it's not like a set currency of Bitcoins. You can continue to divide it and the value of that actually increases. So, Yeah, so Bitcoin is divisible down to eight decimal places. Um, but Okay, so that's a hard limit. Yeah, it is a hard limit. It. And that's, it's in the computer protocol okay. for it. Um, but, you know, that's kind of like sometimes you'll see t-shirts that are like you can buy half of a bitcoin or whatever um because most people are like well i'm not going to shell out 20 grand to buy one of these things and it's like well you could put 200 dollars in it if you really wanted to or whatever which i wouldn't recommend but um and full disclosure i do own some bitcoin although not um you know i'm not living on a catamaran in the caribbean at the moment so You don't own enough of it. <laughs> no, no. I started buying Bitcoin in, in 2015 and it was $250 a Bitcoin. Um, and so, you know, it was a nice investment that worked out well. Uh, but I remember distinctly in January of 2017 when Bitcoin hit $1,000 and I was like, this is insane. What's going on? Now, by the end of that year, it had hit 20000 <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Um, you know, you mentioned kind of the, the the currency question and your evolution and what currency means to you. I think I've had a similar uh, evolution, Bitcoin and other things related. You know, it seems like currency really is just a form of trust and a way that society puts trust into something that can be exchanged between people. Um, but, you know, I think the initial intention of Bitcoin was to literally use it for transactions. I think the first transaction was some guy tried to buy a pizza, right? He sent yeah. Bitcoin and got a pizza from, you know, yeah, the neighborhood said- shop. But as I, t- yeah, good. No, no, no. He, he, he bought two Pizza Hut pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. <laughs> the most expensive pizza in all yep. of human history. But I guess, Incidentally, I guess my question that, that occurred is, on the day I got married. <laughs> oh, wow. So you have that, that date imprinted yeah. in your mind then. <laughs> That's a big day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but my question is like, that was the initial intent. As I talk to folks like you and me and you know, a lot of my peers who have Bitcoin, they are using it like gold, a store of value that I'm not actually mm-hmm. transacting with. And maybe that's just my peer group. But are there folks who are actually using this as an exchangeable currency? Or has the trend gone to a hedge that is different than the physical um, things that we've used in the past for stores of value. Yeah. So as it was rolled out and intended, you know, this was basically meant to be digital cash, you know, an actual bearer instrument that, you know, nobody could prevent you from sending to anybody else on the planet. Right now, I would say it definitely has become much more like digital gold. Um, and there are some groups of people that transact in Bitcoin. Typically, it's uh, individuals that have difficulty with the legacy banking system. Um, You know, so it's, there's a lot of people in the adult entertainment industry that, you know, transact in Bitcoin, because it's hard for them to get bank accounts. Um, One of the things that's difficult in talking about this and kind of cryptocurrencies general here in the United States is that, you know, for all its faults, we actually have one of the best, if not the best financial system um, in the world. And something like Bitcoin, you know, which has this 21 million hard cap and it's magic internet money. And, you know, there's a bunch of weirdos, you know, that are always talking about it. Um, And why would I use a currency where, you know, if I lose the private key, I lose all the money associated with that. Um, You know, that sort of concept and that scarcity is not... The value proposition is not quite obvious here, but in other parts of the world where people are used to their governments, um, you know, doing crazy things with their local currency, all of a sudden, you know, this idea of a, um, you know, this is a scarce money like gold, but it's digital and I can send it using my phone. 
Well, that can be attractive to certain people. You know, there's stories of people using it in Venezuela to try and get around things. Um, apparently, it's commonly used in China to try and get around uh, capital controls, stuff like that. So, you know, it's kind of, um, I would say it's, it's definitely a, a digital gold at the moment for the majority of people. Uh, whether or not it actually becomes kind of a day-to-day -day currency to buy coffee, uh, you know, who knows? The last 10 years have been very interesting for Bitcoin, and I'm sure the next 10 years will be very interesting as well. Yeah, something that's fascinated me is I've walked, as I've watched it, and I think I first saw it in like 2011 on Hacker News, mm -hmm. and I think it was like, you know, 5 or $6 or whatever the price was then as like a... a you know, just an oddity and kind of followed it is, you know, you mentioned the, the ramp up in 2017 and it went from a thousand to literally $20,000 uh, of Bitcoin, you know, huge talk of bubble. It, it was pierced and it dropped to something like 4,000, but then it went silent in the past two years. You know, you've, you hear some about it, but it slowly climbed back up and we're back at $20,000 uh, of Bitcoin and there's not really talk of a bubble. So two year, two year time frame, it goes, you know, 20, 20x, it drops by 5x, and then it, it slowly comes back to 20x. The narrative has totally shifted. What's happened in the past two years, either psychologically or in society, such that this is like an accepted price that folks are pretty confident isn't going to collapse anytime soon? Yeah, I think um, it's kind of one of those things where it's just like people keep expecting it to go away, or, <laughs> you know, like they think it's a and it's going to collapse at some point and it just doesn't and i'm not entirely sure why uh you know when the pandemic hit i thought well this is i mean these are the world conditions that bitcoin is purpose built for right like it should be going gangbusters uh and then it didn't really do anything until kind of the end of this year um and it just kind of i think there's just been gradual kind of um market acceptance amongst probably institutional players to a certain extent recently in the past two years. He has actually been mining Bitcoin since like 2015, which is crazy, um, you know, because that's like Fidelity's a serious company. Um, and uh, but I think, you know, we're, we're getting to a point where it, it's possible that you know, something like the California uh, public employee retirement, you know, system may consider having Bitcoin on their balance sheet just as a, as a, another asset, um, you know, and that's just, it, it has, it has been 10 years since the network launched, but nobody, not a lot of people cared until like 2013 and then not a lot of people cared until like 2017 again, but now it's just kind of, you know, it's, um, I wouldn't say it's going mainstream, but I guess that's a trend for it. Mm -hmm. And in addition to Bitcoin, there's been a number of other currencies that have emerged uh, since 2009 that kind of replicate it. And I think in the run up in 2017, a lot of these had huge bubbles that burst and then have not yet recovered, but the biggest of which was Ethereum. And I know, you know, I invested in IOTA and some other things that obviously didn't pan out. Um, but is the intent there to be a parallel Bitcoin? Is it to replace Bitcoin? Like what are these competitors that have emerged and what are their philosophies? Yeah, they're, they're trying to improve upon Bitcoin. Um, you know, one of the things about that's interesting about Bitcoin is it uh, is really focused on, trust minimization so you don't have to trust anyone else in the network you can just try you can read the code yourself you can read the protocol and every and you just assume everyone that's participating in the network is a bad actor and you act accordingly um and so you know one of the like Bitcoin isn't anonymous, right? It's pseudo-anonymous. And law enforcement actually loves Bitcoin because all the transactions are public. So it's easy for them to, um, you know, build a transaction history for criminals when they use it. And so some of the cryptocurrencies that have come out have tried to improve upon uh, the privacy aspects of Bitcoin. So that's privacy coins, things like Monero, Zcash, um, where they're actually using, you know, transactions on those networks. You don't know anything about the transaction other than it occurred, basically. Ethereum tried to and is trying to 
um, build what they call the world computer, um, where they're using smart contracts. So, uh, you know, one thing that Bitcoin created is now you have unique digital property, basically a piece of information that you have a certain high degree of certainty hasn't been tampered with, right? Or you'll know if it's been tampered with. So what if you, if that piece of information was a, a bunch of computer code that, you know, had certain functions and executed in a particular way to achieve some outcome. So that was what Ethereum tried has, is doing, right? And so people can deploy smart contracts that, um, you know, there's an example, like they pay crop insurance if a sensor uploads some data that there's drought conditions in a farmer's field, right? So automatically a transaction could happen, something like that. Um, but then, you know, the other, I mentioned earlier, Bitcoin, it takes about 10 minutes um, for a block to be mined. So other coins have, uh, you know, had made that, you know, a minute or 30 seconds or whatever. But by and large, everyone has kind of failed. <laughs> um, you know, like these networks, these networks still exist. Um, and there's kind of an interesting question of what happens when uh, they get zombified and there's just kind of like maybe three people around the world that are still actually mining, you know, whatever this coin is. Um, but, you know, nobody has really had the success that Bitcoin and Ethereum have had. And I don't know if it's just kind of like Bitcoin was first. It had this, you know, anonymous founder. So it had kind of a mystique and everything since then have been <laughs> by and large people trying to, you know, get rich quick. Um, and so it doesn't have the same kind of um, uh, staying capacity, but. Hmm. I mean, this is just this is a mind-boggling technology, and in ten years, it's 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 really transformed into something pretty powerful. Um, and to that point, you know, what's been the response of the federal governments? Um, you know, Janet Yellen is now the or presumptive, you know, new Treasury Secretary. She was former chair of the Fed. When she was nominated, um, there was a kind of a trollish tweet that went out, you know, talking about how she's going to institute Bitcoin. And she responded by saying, I hate Bitcoin. And so I think that's one of the, you know, there's the institutionalists who, you know, don't like the decentralized version outside of, you know, the federal government. But what's been the response of the institutionalists around the world in terms of Bitcoin uh, as they try to engage with this compared to their, you know, formalized fiat currencies? Yeah. So, by and large, they've been able to just ignore it, um, you know, because it just hasn't been a serious threat, I don't think. Um, I always thought that, the, you know, the bankers at the Federal Reserve understood Bitcoin very well. They just didn't care, you know, um, because they didn't have to, right? Because like we were talking about earlier, you know, yeah, and it's to a certain extent, this is now digital gold, but it's not actually like a currency that people are using, Um you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, you know, it's, it's obvious when people are trying to do nefarious things with it, or at least, you know, law enforcement has gotten very good at tracking those things. So it just hasn't been a very um, top of mind concern for them. And um, I don't know that that will change. That's all, you know, very soon it might. Um, now, Central banks around the world are looking into building their own digital currencies, central bank digital currencies. Um, you know, the thinking being, oh, wouldn't it be great if we each had a, a digital wallet that was issued by the Fed and a pandemic hit, and then we can get a $1,200 stimulus check automatically sent to said wallet. Now, the thing is, the government presumably could then take the keys for that wallet, you know, if they're instituting it, whereas, you know, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, you theoretically can, you know, be in control of the keys associated with that money. And it gets very difficult for anyone to prevent you from sending transactions on the network if you can be connected to the internet. And so, um, you know, I think it's been a, a, a curiosity and I think they've tried to learn from it um, in some respects, but, you know, it may be a type of situation where, 
you know, when we first went to college, it was super easy to, you know, illegally download music and movies. But then the iTunes store came out and everyone was like, well, I'll just pay 99 cents for the song instead of going through the hassle of like potentially getting a virus on my computer and everything else. You know, and I think that could be, uh, you know, that is a potential future with this, right? Like if all of a sudden digital currencies are being issued by all the world's governments, a lot of people will be like, well, why would I hassle with Bitcoin? You know, like I can just use this fine, you know. I mean, I, I think that that might be valid, but I think about what the government does and what they don't do. They do not do technology well. <laughs> I think we look at healthcare.gov and, you know, the defense innovation space with trying to do software and DOD, and they've really had to rely upon the private sector to be successful. I'm just curious, you know, this would be pure hypothesis and speculation on your point, but with the central bank digital currencies, what are the chances of that being successful compared to like this decentralized Bitcoin that's been, you know, pressure tested and attempted to be hacked all the way around the world? Um, I don't know if I trust the central government at this point to do it right. Yeah, I don't know that I would, um, but they certainly want to try. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it would be hard for them, I think, to get the talent necessary to try and pull off something like this. That said, I mean, if they're just going to copy Bitcoin and, maybe change a couple of characteristics of it, that might be a, a, a much easier lift on their part, you know? So it, mm. it, it just depends, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin network is secured by volunteers and for-profit companies kind of all over the world. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it depends on who's responsible for creating whatever, whatever these kind of central bank digital currencies, if it's people at the federal reserve, you know, maybe the odds of that being, you know, uh, super successful are lower. If they've enlisted the NSA or something, you know, I think the odds go up, which incidentally, there's a, an interesting paper from 1996 that the NSA or researchers at the NSA put out about how you would basically create digital cash, um, that predates Bitcoin hmm. by, you know, over a decade. Um, you know, but it's going to be, I don't know, it's its going to, the next 10 years with respect to money and kind of, uh, you know, Bitcoin not going away, all these kind of fintech startups and everybody's starting to pay on their, you know, using their phone here. It, it's going to be, it's going to be a strange kind of exciting time. Yeah. And, you know, I want to get into what you spend most of your research time on and the class you teach. Before we get into that, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times, and I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, it sounds like you're a bit of a Bitcoin skeptic, potentially. Um, you know, you have some, but you're not like putting all your life savings into it like some other people I know that have not worked out the best for them. But like, what, what is, you're deeply knowledgeable about the topic, but what is your sense of like Bitcoin and your personal philosophy towards it as something that you personally want to adopt and engage with? Yeah, so I don't, it depends on the day, whether or not I'm a skeptic. <laughs> um, you know, I first discovered Bitcoin in 2012 when I was in the midst of a career change and I was starting law school and, um, you know, I have a degree in computer science and I was familiar with distributed computing. And I remember reading about it and I was just like, well, that, that shouldn't work. <laughs> you know, like, this is really weird. Like, what, how, you know, decentralized digital cash, like no one, That'll never work. And then I just kept, um, you know, seeing articles about it. I have like emails to myself, how to start mining from like early 2013, which I didn't start mining because I was in law school. Um, I wish I would have, but, um, you know, and then I, I would say it was 2014. Um, my last semester of law school, I had a professor who, um, you know, I brought Bitcoin up because I kept reading about people using it in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was like, this is insane. Like there's no financial infrastructure here, but they're using Bitcoin. And uh, the professor was kind of like part of my French uh, Bitcoin's bullshit. And I was like, well, I don't think that's fair. I mean, it's been around for four years. The technology appears to be sound. It's certainly interesting. Uh, and we ended up having a debate. He was like, oh, let's have a debate about it. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'll debate you about this. And <laughs> In, pre in preparing, you know, for this debate with my professor, I kind of did a real deep dive and I was like, you know, this is 
going to be huge. I think this is the next big thing. I don't really understand it. Um, but I want to make this part of my kind of career and everything else. And uh, I haven't really looked back. I, the first public talk I gave on Bitcoin was actually at um, the second DEF conference that you did in Chicago. Um, right. I think like October. Right. Yeah, October of 2015, maybe. Um, you know, and it's just, it's, it's something new. You know, it's it, it just didn't exist before. You know, there's kind of like one of the weird things uh, about Bitcoin, I think, is that we have a pretty high degree of confidence that every 10 minutes, a new Bitcoin block is going to be mined. You know, it's almost kind of like you can set your watch to it, right? Sun rises, moon rises, somebody mines a Bitcoin block, you know, and that just didn't really that didn't exist before, you know, and um, it doesn't seem like it should work, <laughs> um, but it does, you know, and it's not going away. So, you know, I think it's just something that I have enjoyed just intellectually learning about. And, you know, I've had some, made some great relationships with other attorneys, uh, you know, that are interested in this space around the country. And, you know, it's uh, afforded me, you know, I never thought I'd be teaching a law school class, but, um, you know, here I am because nobody really was doing that. I think there were like three law schools before we started teaching it. Um, you know, so it's just kind of been, um, you know, something beneficial to my life and fun and interesting. Um, even though it's, you know, weird magic internet money that doesn't, shouldn't seem like it should work. What strikes me about that is it seems like the most lucrative entrepreneurial or innovation ideas are the things that shouldn't work, that no one believes will be successful. Because if they were, they would have already been swept up by some, you know, opportunist. Right. But, you know, the non-consensus and right, the upper right quadrant of, of that two by two of consensus, non-consensus, wrong and right, like that's where a lot of interesting things happen. It's not predictable. And if it wasn't Bitcoin mm -hmm. and Bitcoin failed, it would have been something else that comes up there. And so I think your, your consistent theme of this shouldn't work, this shouldn't work actually is one of the reasons why it has worked. Not to say everything like that works, but like something like it was bound to happen, whether it's the NSA or whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or some other thing. I mean, I think that's just a general lesson that I've taken from the innovation world is, is you know, upfront, you can't predict what's going to happen. But in retrospect, the mm -hmm. things that are big, like Airbnb, who would have thought that you'd like let someone into your house to stay <laughs> with you would be a $100 billion IPO. I mean, it just, it's bonkers, but like it, it works it, 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 at, some, at some level. Um, so I think for me, that's just a broader lesson of Bitcoin, even if, you know, 2010 didn't invest because at the time it seemed balderdash, but like it makes sense why things like this do evolve and take over our society, you know, decades after they start. Um, but I want to get to your class because you, you mentioned you were one of the first ones to teach this. So walk us through the curriculum you guys have in place for your students and what do you explore in this class? Yeah, so we really try and um, communicate and teach the students kind of like the basics, as it were. So we break the class up into three different modules. The first module is focused on um, kind of the, the core technology concepts. So we spend a lot of time talking about ledgers, like going back to, you know, ancient Samaria. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about public key cryptography, um, hash functions, kind of all of the things, um, you know, networks, what decentralization actually means, uh, and then how all of those pieces fit together to give you something like Bitcoin. Uh, the second module, we focus on actual, like, um, they, hit, they get presentations on companies in the space um, and we bring in guest speakers to show them like, this is a real thing. You know, it's not just a bunch of, um, you know, weirdos on the internet. And then the last module is on the law and professor uh, Dan and I are kind of, our philosophy is you don't actually need new laws for any of this stuff. You just need to figure out how the existing law applies to it you know so we talk about money transmission law um you know we talk about uh the bank secrecy act um i do a little bit on um, intellectual property and blockchain because we do a lot of that at our law firm um 
and that's and then of course there's like we have somebody a guest lecture come in and talk about securities uh issues because that's been a very hot kind of legal area for about four years with respect to all of this you know because as you can imagine um the government generally speaking uh takes an interest when you're like issuing new money <laughs> what what have been the big legal cases that bitcoin has prompted bitcoin not particularly many i would say um there was a case um like the very first cases that mentioned bitcoin um were usually people getting arrested for something and they say oh that's you know there was nothing of value involved here because it was it was bitcoin and bitcoin doesn't have you know monetary value or whatever and in one case a, a judge was like well, you have emails saying you use it as money to buy things. So, you know, <laughs> you can't that now claim it doesn't. It's not money. But Ethereum um, and some other networks have, have spawned a lot of cases, um, in particular um, securities fraud cases and whatnot. Um, there was something called the ICO boom, uh, the initial coin offering, which uh, seemed misguided from the very beginning. Um, but, um, and I had a buddy who was, um, uh, his, his company, the, the board wanted to, like half the board wanted to do an ICO and the other half was like, I'm going to leave the board if you do one. And he asked me what I thought. And I said, don't do it because <laughs> you're going to get, you know, sued by the SEC. I think that friend might have been me, actually. <laughs> uh, no, this is that was actually uh, <laughs> a different one. That was okay. yeah, you know the 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 other person. Um, but yeah, we had that conversation Got it. too. Got it. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, so that was a lot of uh, you know, and for like a year, I co-wrote a blog um, where we looked at three kind of blockchain-related cases, legal cases every week, um, and wrote about it. And we spent a lot of time writing about ICOs that had gone wrong. And um, so there hasn't really been uh, like major cases that have come out. Um, it's kind of been, as I said, as somebody who doesn't think we need new laws, it's been like the obvious stuff. Like, well, of course, that's what's going to happen. You know, probably the most famous, I guess, mm -hmm. case would be um, the Dread Pirate Roberts, what's his name, Ross Ulbrich, who was running, um, not Pirate Bay, he was basically running like illegal eBay, um, and he was using Bitcoin, and that was in part how they ended up uh, catching him uh, and his kind of lieutenants in this, uh, endeavor at a public library in San Francisco, like with his laptop open. Um, it's an interesting story. I think Wired did a nice long, uh, piece on it in like 2017, but, um, yeah, there hasn't been really new, um, uh, new cases or anything like no legal precedent has really been established as a consequence of all of this. I mean, it, this is somewhat legally tangential, but I found it interesting and in, I think it was the end of 2017 where the IRS basically started to enforce capital gains on on Bitcoin, which, you know, gets to the philosophical thing of, well, if it's a currency, I guess you, you get capital gains if you're doing, you know, Forex trading. Um, but is there a way to keep it as a store of value um, without it being subject to U.S. tax law? And... Um, Obviously, I think the, the Fed's always win in that case. But have you seen any, any movement or challenges to that requirement that you report gains in these currencies? Not, not successful challenges, no. Um, there's a, a lobbying yeah. organization called Coin Center, which is trying to um, push for a, um, like a, uh, a forgiveness level. So like every transaction below like $500 wouldn't end up being a tax event because as it stands right now, the IRS has taken the position that anytime you uh, transact in Bitcoin, it's a taxable event. And, um, you know, it's, it's a situation where the IRS says this is property. Uh, the SEC says these are securities, although the SEC did has said that Bitcoin is not a security, but um, uh, FinCEN, which is the financial uh, crimes enforcement network, part of the treasury says it's money. And the CFTC, which is the Commodities Future Trading Commission, says all this stuff is 
commodities. Um, so, you know, for entrepreneurs in the space that are trying to build companies uh, using this technology, uh, it's a really high regulatory bar that they have to kind of cross. Um, and they don't all do it very well. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the students who are taking this, uh, are they planning to do something related to you know, crypto or Bitcoin or blockchain, or is it just a fun class to take to understand something new? Like wh- what's the demographic of the folks who are taking this Yeah, class? it's kind of all over the place. Um, we get the, um, like, we always have like the super far left students and then like the super anti-government far right in that class. Um, we've had a, over 40 students each time it's been taught. Um, and you know, some of them are, are techies uh, that have some familiarity with it, um, but not very many. Most of it is just people that are kind of like, well, this sounds interesting, you know, and uh, they come from all walks of life. They're not necessarily um, interested in pursuing a career in crypto. In fact, most of them aren't, and we usually advise them not to, <laughs> um, you know, but uh, we also say to them, you know, this is a, it's still a new technology area. Not a lot of people know about it. This is a way for you to kind of distinguish yourself uh, from your peers. Um, you know, when you get to a law firm, uh, if there's anything, even if say you're doing, you know, family law and you're handling divorces, uh, you probably will be the only attorney there who's like, well, have we asked the other party, do they have any cryptocurrency? You know, and it's almost mm-hmm. to, it's not there yet, but it will eventually get there where it'll be standard practice uh, as part of divorces that like you have to ask, okay, do you have any cryptocurrency holding and please disclose any of those addresses so that we can verify, you know, um, there have been a couple cases out of Florida where people <laughs> where uh, usually a, a, a husband or ex-husband is trying to hide like a million dollars in Bitcoin uh, without his ex-wife knowing, uh, and it usually doesn't work out well. Hmm. You know, one of the things I'm seeing emerging are these companies forming to build like mining syndicates. And so I have a business school friend of mine, he's Russian, and he has access to significant power reserves in the Siberian. And so he set up a, uh, a Bitcoin mining facility. And I have another friend who's 22 years old, who's setting one up in Arizona and using the tax credit that Arizona gives for alternative energy, like solar and wind, to basically mine Bitcoin for free because the energy he uses, he can then pump back. So there's all <laughs> sorts of like crazy arbitrage things going on with both the energy and Bitcoin stuff. And, you know, on one hand, I love the, um, the entrepreneurialism and the, uh, the deep dive folks are doing it. On the other end, it's like, what societal value are things like this adding aside from, you know, helping to distribute this, this ledger while producing, you know, immense amounts of wealth, if you do it right. Um, I don't know. What, what are you seeing emerging in the space? There are some trends that we might not know about that go beyond the headlines. Yeah, I think an event I'm kind of waiting to see happen is kind of widespread adoption of uh, people using Bitcoin in probably a less developed country um, where the population just kind of they don't trust the government and they just decide we're all going to start using this. Um Supposedly, that's been happening in, in Venezuela. It's hard to get um, like good information on that, or you know, to actually fact check that. Um, but you know, it, it's just kind of Bitcoin's just kind of there, <laughs> and it's not going away. And I think its value probably will go up the more governments pay attention to it, because more people will be like, "Well, if government doesn't." like this, or if they're trying to create some sort of alternative, then what is this about? You know, and, and one of the things that we stress in the class is, yes, this is extremely complex technology, but it's built off of, um, you know, well-known components that you can understand. And it's just the combination of it that's unique that has produced this, you know, 
new transaction technology, you know, that changes kind of the trust equation in some capacity. And now we have unique digital property, right? This kind of censorship resistant value transfer vehicle um, is one of the ways that we characterize it. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, you know, if people just, I think there's a lot of people that hold Bitcoin that are just kind of quiet about it. You know, like one of my buddies from uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like we were, this was, you know, in the before times, before COVID. Um, and like casually, he mentioned that he had Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I was like, what? I, like, Mike, that doesn't even, okay, that's cool. Like, But it was just kind of, it, it wasn't somebody that you would expect, right? So I, I'm, I do wonder how much of their, you know, how much kind of market penetration there has been amongst uh people that you just wouldn't anticipate. I remember during 2017, I was on the train here going downtown to uh, work and there was like a 20 year old or something that was on their phone, like literally buying Bitcoin. And I was like, this, we're in, we have to be in a bubble because like, what is going, you know, like I'm seeing this out in the wild. This is not normal. Yeah. Oh, to that point at the, at the peak of the 2017 bubble, there was a there was a series of webinars that was done by a conservative group I belong to, and they went on Bitcoin. And when they had these people in Bitcoin, I'm like, this is the top. When you have a group of conservatives who are political focused, talking about how to buy Bitcoin and trade it, and you know, you mom and your brother are like chiming in on what they've done. You're like, okay, there's there's no way that this is sustainable. But I have to say, this gets back to our earlier conversation on what a currency actually means. And if, if it's true that a currency is really just a quanti quantified view of trust in society, the only way that trust will endure and spread out is the silent majority adopting it. And so the more people that are silently buying a tenth of a Bitcoin or a half a Bitcoin or a full Bitcoin, all of a sudden, if you have 20, 40, 60% of the population with something like this in their back pocket as a hedge or whatever, it's become a de facto societal mm -hmm. currency. And there is some level of trust that they are putting their hard-earned dollars or uh, yens or, um, or euros into um, that isn't going to be reported on. And that, that is trust in a very real way. Yeah, yeah. Current, two stories that we always tell in the class. Um, one is about the Irish banking crisis. Um, or actually the three crises in the 1970s. So basically what happened was all of the bank employees in Ireland um, went on strike. And economists thought, well, the economy in Ireland is going to tank as a consequence, right? Because nobody can get money out. They can't use, you know, send checks or whatever. But what actually happened is that the Irish economy grew. And these informal kind of systems of credit uh, popped up around the local pub, uh, which really, when you think about it, it, makes sense. Like if I owe you a hundred bucks and I know I'm going to see you at five o'clock at the pub, I, either I'm not going to go to the pub or I'm going to be like, I really got to pay Ben, <laughs> you know, cause he's going to be like, where's my money, man? Where's my money? Yeah. Yeah. I'll get you while well, you're drinking the beer, but you're not giving me the money. So what's going on here? Um, you know, so, and, and what actually happened is the economy, I think, went down after the banks opened back up because everybody showed up with their IOUs and say, oh, well, no, he owed me this and I'm trying to, you know, make good on that. Um, and then the other is um, there's a series of islands in the Pacific called the Yap Islands. And the Yapese people there, their system of money are basically giant stone circles, the Yap stones. And everyone um, just agrees uh, that all credits and debits go on these stones to the point where the stones don't even have to physically change hands. Um, they can just sit in one location and people just reference them. There, there's even a story that one of the, these stones was being transported between islands, the boat sunk, uh, and people still val like um, validated all the credits and debts on the stone that was at the bottom of the ocean. So, you know, it, I really think you're right that is, um, money is just some sort of like societal trust function, right? Um, and it can be whatever you want. Cause that's, that's usually the very first question I get. Well, why does this, any of this stuff have any value? 
And I usually say, why does anything have any value, right? It's whatever people say it is, um, which can be an unsatisfying answer, but it's not wrong. I mean, that's the dollar after Bretton Woods in 73. Like the government says that this green piece of paper has money and people believe it, but there's nothing backing it up. There's no gold anymore. And even gold, like why do we arbitrarily choose this, you know, malleable piece of, of metal that could be transitioned? I mean, it is fascinating because it is the, it is a, a foundational element of society. People spend their entire lives pursuing it. And yet to some extent, it's just this ephemeral psychological thing that humanity has created to exchange value. You know, one of the most interesting summers I did, and, you know, I've stopped doing this, but I used to do, you know, mini courses that I designed for myself was understanding money. Um, and I think that the Yap story you mentioned, uh, I first read about in a book called Debt, the First 10,000 Years, mm -hmm. which is probably the most interesting exposition of, of, of human money and the history behind it. But it, this, is, this is a fascinating psychological uh, look into what drives humanity and, and how we ascribe value to things. And you know, when Bitcoin first came out and there was pushback against it because it being this, this random thing, I just couldn't help but think, well, th this is just the same as every other currency we've ever had. I mean, you look at you know, the 1200 1300s where they literally had silver coins, but they'd slowly be shaved away. And all of a sudden you have massive currency inflation, which drove, you know, landowners and the serfs into basically war with each other because of these currency wars. I mean, this is this has been going on for centuries, and this is just a digital manifestation of, of, of money these days. Um, so, I, I mean, th this is not going away by any means. And I think, to your point, Bitcoin is likely here to stay. Now, what form or fashion is, is to be determined? But it seems like I actually like your idea of, you know, in the near future, you'll probably see a country transition to Bitcoin as their main form of currency um, because of either lack of trust in the local government or just the ability for folks to exchange that. Yeah. Yeah. In some respects, you know, we're really returning to the past. Like you said, um, you know, we've had private currencies here in the United States in the 19th century. Um, banks would issue their own script. Uh, there were lots more bank runs at that, that, that time. And so, um, you know, it, this is a return to the past in, in some respect. And, um, you know, I, I, if I think there's like a most likely scenario of where all this is heading, I think it becomes some sort of kind of alternative global reserve currency that more or less functions as kind of digital gold, you know? So say you take a trip to, um, you know, Europe and maybe you convert dollars to euros, or maybe you just bring some Bitcoin with you and you pay for things, you know, with Bitcoin. I don't know. Um, but that seems most likely, you know, there's the kind of diehards in this community, you know, believe that, you know, the dollar is going to end and Bitcoin is going to become the global standard for money and everything else. And um, I'm personally not a utopian. And so I don't believe such things. <laughs> um, but if the dollar ends, we have much bigger problems than, you know, whether or not we can secure our Bitcoin. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just kind of, I guess I'm still in that uh, state of mind where like, huh, well, this is interesting, <laughs> you know, and like the more I learn about it, I'm just kind of like, I, I feel like I understand this even less, even though I know I, a, a ton about it, you know? Yeah, well, I, I get that sense too, even looking at the, the federal government's balance sheet where, you know, for the past two years, we're what, at $25 trillion in debt, yeah. no end in sight. Neither major party anymore talks about the debt or the deficit. We're printing money like create like you know in March, the Fed literally created two one trillion dollar coins that they put against their balance sheet, um, and like as a classical uh, economist, in, in in my view, like modern monetary theory is something that's totally anathema. But I'm like, what if it's actually right? What if like it doesn't matter how much we print? Like that is that's really revolutionary. I don't think it'll work, but like if it doesn't work and we have inflated ourselves into oblivion, then something like Bitcoin could be that last resort that is some sort of like, you know, distributed, globally trusted um, 
net worth that would drive its value even further. I, but, and again, to your point though, like the more I read about this, the more I realize I just don't know and can't predict with any semblance of, of accuracy because all of my preconceived notions of, of economic theory, whether it's behavioral or not, have been blown out of the water in the past 10 years. Like it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is kind of, um, yeah, we're living through weird times, I think, like genuinely. Um, and there's a great book uh, that I read recently uh, earlier this year called The Revolt of the Public, um, written by Martin Gurry. And basically his kind of thesis is that um, the public, uh, so to speak, has realized that authority basically has no clothes, right? And so people are revolting. And that's why you, I think he's start point is like the tea party um basically obama came in and promised these you know things that government just couldn't deliver on right and now government's become so complex that it can't provide you know it can't provide us for our happiness and you know other things like that but the people some people kind of expect that right and so there's this strong kind of um you know, movement against authority just in general. And I think the pandemic in this year has really laid bare all of that, right? You know, why would any, if I was a 20 year old right now living through all this, I would be like, I don't trust anyone anymore. You know, why should I, you know, you sold me a bill of goods that did not live up to what, you know, was listed out there. And so I think Bitcoin is, is part of that kind of its existence and it's kind of increasing adoption as part of that just general, distrust that's growing um, in kind of all sectors, you know, it's not just government, right? Why would you trust universities at this point? Why would you trust, you know, big business, uh, you know, any number of things, right? And so I don't really know how, that's not the world you and I grew up in, I don't feel like. And so I'm not quite sure what the next, you know, 10 years are, are going to look like with all of that going on. Wow, I feel like that's a whole new episode. Into. <laughs> um, and on that note, we, we have hit our time. Nelson, thank you so much for giving us the deep dive on Bitcoin and, you know, in more than just a currency, but I think there's threads into many parts of society that, uh, that we were, we were fortunate to explore with you. So thanks for the work you're doing uh, in your class and uh, for the rest of the listeners, thanks for joining in tonight. We'll catch you in the next episode of a random walk with Ben Coleman. Have a great night.